You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, I have a cold today. We're just going to keep calm, carry on. It's what we get. Hey, really glad you're here today, and I just think God's got something special uh, in this passage of Scripture for you. So if you take your sermon outline out, I think we'll just jump right in. We've been in a series called Keep Calm and Carry On, and the idea is at the top of your outline, it basically says, with hope, you have the ability to overcome or rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on. If we just have a little bit of hope, then we have the ability to rise above those circumstances. And I want to ask a question of you this morning. Uh, just go ahead and, and kind of clear your mind for a minute, and then I want to ask you this question. How do you feel spiritually today? How do you feel spiritually today? See, I just asked you a feeling question, not a thinking question. If I asked you a thinking question, you might have to actual facts, but if I asked you a feeling question, then you basically, what happened in your mind there for a minute is a, a little jury showed up and like sat on one side of your brain and then um, the, you know, the plaintiff announced your arrival that the judge of you was going to be presiding today and then you took uh, cases from like your negative thoughts and maybe your, your, uh, your optimistic side and you heard both arguments and then you came to the actual resolution of how you feel you're doing spiritually today. And you might have looked over the, the case work of your last week and said, hey, there are certain areas I just totally messed up. And other areas where you thought, I'm actually doing pretty good. I had some good time in the Word with the Lord, and I've been praying to Him, and just, I've just been more relaxed. And, and, and in either way, both sides made their argument, and then you arrived in that moment at a judgment. The jury voted, and uh, you just arrived at a judgment about how you feel spiritually today. What you did in your mind is you made a judgment. You walked through that evidence and you decided. That judgment largely is based on our ego. Kierkegaard says this, the normal state of the human heart is to try to build its identity around something besides God. Anything you can build your identity around, try to do it at something besides God. It's just in his book, Sickness Unto Death, just talks about the, how sick, in the sense, the human ego is, the human heart. So what happens, you and I, we judge, we compare, we promote our preferences, we compete for a favorable verdict. In any situation we walk into, we kind of look around the room and we say, how do I stack up? How do I stack up with these people here? How do I stack up with these people there? And, and where is my standing in that? Maybe you understand this when you go to a business meeting and you walk in and you're like, well, here's where my job title puts me within this group of people in terms of like authority and power in the room. And, but here's where my years of experience or here's where that person is, you know, they're well known in the industry. The reputation precedes them. And, and, and what happens is you and my, we walk into these situations and you're in my mind just says, well, how do I stack up in the room? It happens among pastors. Pastors walk in and they go, oh, how big is this church or that church? And then they walk in the room and they look around and go, oh, that person's been a pastor for years and years and maybe we're a startup. And, and they begin to you know, categorize how, where do I fit within this gathering of pastors? It happens with business people. It happens in families. It happens when you walk into a room and you're looking around and checking out everyone else's beauty as compared to your own. And you're like, oh, I hate that girl. She's got better hair than I do. And you begin to look around and you're saying, how does my beauty rank in this room? 
And we begin to make judgments everywhere we go, and it is exhausting. You pull up to a stoplight, and you're like, how does my car compare to the cars around me? All the time making judgments about clothing and, and promoting ourselves. But those whose lives have been transformed by Jesus ought to be different. That we should care less about some of those things. Sometimes we get involved in all that stuff. We go, I just, I just want to quit. Honestly, like, you know, you may never get to the ultimate power position in your job. And then sometimes people who do get to the ultimate power position, they say, is this all that there is? Like, seriously, isn't there something else? There should have been more for all the work and effort we've put into getting to where we are. It's exhausting. Those who are transformed by Jesus ought to be different. We ought to be able to keep calm and carry on even at times that we have a feeling that we want to just give up or throw in the towel or quit. And so Paul writes to a church who's been competing over which was their favorite spiritual celebrity. Was it Paul? Was it Apollos? Was it Peter? And they were competing over which was their favorite and they were having trouble even enjoying relationship with one another because they were competing with who they thought might just be the best. And so Paul writes this to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have your Bible, open with me. He says, this then is how you ought to regard us, these apostles, these leaders, right? As servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. So just let me just time out right there. He said, I don't care if a human court judges me. I don't care if you do. In fact, I don't judge myself. He goes, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent, right? You might be a psychopathic killer and have a clear conscience, but that does not, it does not make you innocent, right? You're still, a, so he's saying, even for myself, even if my conscience is clear, that doesn't give me a right for a judgment. It is the Lord who judges me. He goes on and says this, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring light to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of do not go what is beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What did you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why did you boast as though you did not? He's basically saying, listen, everything that you have, you've received. When you were born as a baby, you were born naked and you were born dependent and that's the way that you exist you just simply were born that way so everything that you have along the way somehow you've received it the gifts the talents the abilities did you work for some of them yes but ultimately you received those talents all those things and he's saying we are humans we belong one to another we're not to exalt one another up above those when we're in Christ it's the equalizing factor but what happens to us What's the natural state of the human ego? When you and I are born, what's our natural state? Paul calls it pride. You and I were born into pride. 
The pride, the word he uses in this passage for pride is not the normal word in Greek, which is hubris, which talks about pride, but it's actually, it's really unique to this passage. It's physio. And what it means is this, that your pride is, it's overinflated. It's like swollen. It's distended. It's the natural condition of the human ego is that it's boastful. You might picture like, uh, maybe you see a picture of a starving little child and you just think that their belly is distended and they're, they're like almost overinflated, but you know they're malnourished and they're sick. They're not healthy, but they're like inflated until they get nutrition. They're not going to gain normal body proportions, right? And he's saying that's what our ego is like. Our ego is bloated, it's distended, it's puffed up. Author and pastor Tim Keller suggests that the human ego is empty and painful, busy and fragile. And so if you're taking notes today, you realize that first of all, the human ego is empty. We are puffed up with nothing at its center. It searches for something that will give it worth, specialness or purpose, and it builds itself on that. So right away, our ego is empty, and so we're always trying to fill it with something. It, it, think about it this way. When you meet someone new, what's the kind of resume that you begin to make sure are the facts that you tell them about yourself so that you begin to build up, in a sense, your ego, like, here's what I do, here's where I work, uh, this is how many kids I have or what's in my family, this is where I go to church, this is uh, what kind of car I drive or what things I'm involved in, and you might go on and on and on telling what your talents, your abilities are, your interests, all those things you begin to give your resume to people to try to validate your ego. Now, a lot of us in this room, not certainly not all of us, but many of us in this room in, in, in American culture, we largely grew up with nurture. We grew up with nurture that basically, you know what, if you get in trouble, the government somehow was supposed to kind of bail us out or and maybe you had a, a single parent or, or you had two parents and they really nurtured you. Maybe they were very protective and you never received criticism growing up and you just got an award for playing on the team, right? You, everybody gets a trophy just for showing up, I guess. And so you do that like your parents put a helmet on your head so you would live through breakfast, I mean, you know, they're just trying to always shield and to protect you and to care for you. And, and we, we've grown up in this culture of like, we're supposed to nurture and everybody's okay and no one's ever supposed to be offended. And when you and I grow up with nurture like that, we begin to think that risk equals bad. That risk is bad. Like, like, why would we ever want to risk? Like, Lord forbid that we ever, you know, break a bone or have to go to the hospital or, you know, I mean, are those things bad? On some degree, yeah. But not all risk is bad. You realize that love doesn't exist without risk. If you don't risk, you won't actually love. You won't experience love because it, there's an opening of your ego. There's a, a risking of yourself to be known as you really are, not as your resume projects. And you risk, and some of you in this room, you've gotten in a relationship where along the way, you got to that moment of risk, and you freaked out. You've totally panicked. You got to the moment of panic, and some of you in the room, you've never actually walked all the way in and experienced deep love that's sacrificial because you've been so exhausted putting out the resume, and when they see beyond that resume, you panic and you leave. You sabotage your opportunity to experience love. Growth exists with an element of risk. You don't grow unless you try new experiences, unless you reach out and do new things. You're not going to grow and acquire new skills unless you at least risk doing them. 
You're not going to find out what you're good at volunteering doing unless you actually step out and risk volunteering. It's very easy to stay consumed with ourselves and our own lives. But the moment that you and I step out on someone and go, wow, I thought junior hires were scary, but they're not, and I actually like them. And it brings out the playful side of me that I had forgotten in my adult world in which I live and work and, and, and all the weight of the seriousness I get involved in. It's fun to play again. And all of a sudden you realize, wow, that's a great place. So risk is not always bad. And I got to tell you, like this young generation, particularly the millennials, they're at, it's interesting to watch them because on one hand, they will, they'll risk. They'll be like, I want to go skydiving. And they will actually jump out of a plane. But then they get into a job situation and they're like, wow, this is really intimidating. Like, like I almost want someone to be there with me when I'm filling out a job application or I'm really afraid to like step out. And you're like, really? You're afraid to step out in those areas? But it's just this angst. They've grown up with nurture. And when they're faced with risk where they may get rejected or criticized, there's this duality that exists among our high schoolers and our young adults right now. They're risking and great at some things, and other things just freak them out. Risk is not always bad. And sometimes you can remind yourself of that. It's not always bad to risk. Secondly, the ego is painful. It's distended. It's swollen. It's really what is broken inside of our ego that hurts. Do you realize when you say, well, that person really hurt my feelings, do you realize that feelings can't actually be hurt? Nobody can hurt your feelings. That just doesn't exist. That doesn't work. What really works is that somebody injured my view of myself. What they did, my feelings are showing up because someone else wounded my ego. And, and when it's hurt, when something hurts, we give attention to that which hurts, right? So we assume sometimes that hurt equals bad. We get tempted to quit. You got involved in someone, someone stepped on your toes, they wounded your feelings, and all of a sudden you're like, forget it, it you know, I don't like getting hurt, so I'm going to just quit because sometimes hurt equals bad. Well, let me tell you, if you go to the gym and you haven't gone to the gym in a while, hurt hurts, but it's not necessarily bad, it's actually good for you, right? Pain is weakness leaving the body, is what the Marines say. So sometimes hurt is good. It's not always bad, and maybe if you're taking notes today, you might take your pen or pencil and scratch out a line through that equal sign because hurt does not always equal bad, just like risk does not always equal bad. But our soul wants to be puffed up because it's empty. Our soul wants to avoid pain because in itself it is painful. Our soul is also, our ego is also busy. We go on all the time trying to fill the emptiness, don't we? Some of you in this room, you are so busy and you don't know how to be bored and, and our culture feeds it. Like you stand in line for five minutes and you start checking your phone, right? Because you want stimulus. You, all the time you're like checking out, I, I got to check this out because I, I don't know what to do with boredom. And sometimes being bored isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, some people get very creative when they get bored. It's not until they achieve boredom do they begin to get very creative. Because the stimulus and the busyness and the things all the time, they keep them from deeper creativity because it's just right there in their face. And we sometimes always are trying to fill our ego with busyness. We're busy comparing. We're busy boasting all the time, comparing and judging and boasting. You can only be proud in your life with more. Pride 
by itself and its nature is naturally competitive. Did you ever think of that? Your pride's competitive. You finally get what you think is more, and then you run into somebody who has more than you do, and you suddenly lose all the pleasure with what you just achieved or what you just have. You pulled up at that stoplight in this newer vehicle that you maybe had. You suddenly lose pleasure because someone else has a, a better one or the newer model or the next year comes around and you begin to realize, I'm, I'm feeding my ego. My ego, I'm trying to make it busy all the time. We're busy all the time doing things we have no pleasure trying to build our self-esteem resume. And you and I do that and our culture teaches us to do it. And you might assume, because we're very entitled in our culture, aren't we? You might assume that because you've been entitled that labor is bad. That actually doing hard things is, is bad. But the truth is, time with God is not quick and easy. Time with God is you spend time reading his word and sometimes you're like, I tried to read God's word and it got a little confusing for me and so I just stopped. It's not, I ran into some challenges and I'm going to have to labor at this a little bit and do hard things and then get to that higher level. I mean, no one has to teach my kids how to watch TV. Never had to do that. Never had to teach kids how to watch TV. But for them to play an instrument, it's labor intensive, isn't it? It takes time. See, busyness by its nature demands that things should be fast and easy. And some of you in this room, or some people that you know, have said, I tried to go deeper with God, and it didn't get the immediate, fast, and easy result that I wanted, and so I might as well just coast and begin to go back to my old ways of feeding my ego and puffing myself up and inflating myself. And then you watch your life. You're getting puffed up, and then you get deflated. And then you get puffed up again, and then you get deflated. And it's relentless, and it's exhausting, So what do we do when we want to quit? Fine, fine, I'm not going to go after more. I'm just going to be content with what I got. And you just quit. We need to keep calm and carry on to live for what really matters, not these things that temporarily puff up and then deflate. Because as soon as you get the new iPhone, there's another one coming. Just around the corner, a few more bells and whistles, right? Don't get puffed up. And the ego then is fragile. It's overinflated, which means if it's overinflated, it's like a balloon that's all puffed up. It means it just takes one little pin prick and it instantly gets deflated. If it's largely distended, if it's largely puffed up, it is easily deflated. A, superior com a superiority complex and an inferiority complex are actually have the same root. It's this, that they were puffed up and they're overinflated. They have a superiority complex. And they think, I'm always right. I'm always correct. No one else is as good as me. And you got this superiority complex. You're the same thing because you're just puffed up. You're the same thing as an inferiority complex because the inferiority complex used to be puffed up, but now it's deflated. And you're saying, well, I used to be puffed up, but then all these hard things happened. And you're, and you, but it's the same thing. It's the same pride. I'm either puffing myself up or in my pride I'm saying, I'm a victim, I'm deflated because my ego is fragile. I've been busy trying to puff it up and then it got deflated and I'm trying to puff myself up again. It's painful, it's empty, and I'm trying to fill it with that which doesn't satisfy. 
We grew up in a culture where we need and we actually expect things to be easy. And it's amazing, uh, even among young adults, that I used to teach college class out in Colorado at Colorado Christian University. And while I was there teaching college-level classes, you'd watch these students who maybe they coasted through high school, and it was just easy for them because of where their intellect was at and where the bar was raised in terms of their education. And then they got on the college thing, and they had to like actually be like, wow, this is hard. Like, I, I actually have to work at this. That's right. For certain higher disciplines, you're going to have to work. You're going to have to improve your study skills. You're going to have to do things. And you might assume in that thing that, you know, wow, you know, I'm just so fragile and things should just be easy in life. God, my life should just be easy. You should be for me. I should never have to have a hard experience in my life, Lord. And then we do, and we assume that maybe God has abandoned us when in reality you and I grow more through the hard than we do through the easy. And you might assume that hard equals bad. Well, you mean I got to like get in there and begin to read the Bible and draw close to God and I need to learn to communicate in relationship with a God who isn't going to text me back immediately? Yes. And you might have assumed that hard equals bad, but hard does not always equal bad. Sometimes it's just hard. And we grow to be people. We keep calm and carry on. We learn to do hard things. So you might assume that hard equals bad, but it's not always. And if you're taking notes, you might put a swipe through that equal sign because hard does not, always, does not always equal bad. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve self-worth, and find a big enough purpose without God. This is what the atheist thinks. Their spiritual pride is, I can figure out enough purpose in life by living, and I can puff myself up and fill my resume up and satisfy my ego and my soul without needing God at all. And what do they find? They find that their soul is an empty cistern. They pour water and it's got cracks at the bottom and it goes back into the water table of the soil and it's just always dry and everything they thought was going to prop them up and puff them up actually deflates because they're not ministering to the heart of their soul. It's pride. Well, Paul comes along and wants to change that. The Corinthian people were unable to enjoy relationship with each other because they were so busy competing over who they liked. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? And Paul's come along and said, listen, you need to get this straight. You need to realize that you are of Christ, that there doesn't need to be Paul or Apollos or anybody else. It's that you are of Christ. And because you're of Christ, you have amazing identity And you don't need to rely on the things that you're putting in your resume to puff you up that also then turn around to deflate you. Why? These people were competing over their favorite spiritual celebrity, and they always wanted more, but they couldn't get more of that person. They couldn't get more, but they would fight with each other about how close maybe they were to Paul or Apollos or to Peter. Well, Paul says that the gospel has transformed his self-worth, his self-regard, and his identity He doesn't quit even when circumstances change or things get hard. He goes through very hard circumstances, but he keeps calm and he carries on when he's tempted to quit. Look at what he says here. In fact, he says, we even, we'll look at this in just the passage in a second. He says, I'm even willing to make myself the scum of the earth. I've got friends who attend a church in Denver, Colorado. It's called Scum of the Earth. That's the name of their church. Comes from this passage. 
It's like the garbage of the world. He's saying, listen, all these other things that used to prop us up, and it, it, we don't do that. Because I am of Christ, who I am, who Paul is, is like scum of the earth. He goes, I'm content and willing to become the scum of the earth. Is the greatest statement ever. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. He's saying to them, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. What is he saying? You're of Christ. You were nothing. We were all equal, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, you now have become rich. You're doing great. You don't realize your value. Then he says this, you have begun to reign, but he says this almost sarcastically. He's like, you begun to reign and that without us. What's he saying? He's poking fun at them. He's saying, listen, you've begun to reign because you've been choosing kings. Instead of following the king of kings and the Lord of lords, you've been choosing kings. Is it Paul? Is it Apollos? Is it Peter? Who's your favorite celebrity? Who's your favorite author? They've been choosing kings, and in doing so, they're puffing themselves up to align themselves, their theology, all with a human being. And what they're saying is, you're of Christ. He's saying, look at you. You've begun to reign, and, and we're not even there. We're all traveling around, promoting the gospel in the region. But you're puffing yourself up with who you know best. He said this, how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. In other words, he's saying, I'm an apostle, but that we would come alongside and we reign under Christ because we're of Christ. And so he says, that's where we should be. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels, as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you, you're so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you're strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored to this very hour. Here's the condition of his life. He says, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. He does hard things, right? Keep calm, even when it's brutal like that. He says this, when we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. Isn't it a beautiful thing? That Paul is saying, listen, instead of making a judgment in my mind and beginning to puff myself up and then playing the performance game with God, like, like, am I good today or am I not good today? He basically is just saying, I am free to live and I'm going to free myself from the things of the world that try to puff me up or deflate me. I got to tell you something. I think this is what modern day martyrs who shed their blood because of their belief in Jesus Christ would say to the church in America. You're rich, you're strong, you're wise, you're honored. And we, we become like the scum of the earth. But it's okay because we are of Christ. We are of him. And that's what matters, that our whole life is stewardship. How you and I use our whole life, our parenting, our marriage, everything that we do, our work, it's all stewardship. How do we leverage this temporary life for the eternal, for his kingdom? And Paul's saying, I get rid of it. I get rid of the stuff that I used to prop myself up on because I am of Christ. And he's saying, that's where you are. So stop choosing these human leaders. How do you and I reach the point that we no longer are controlled by what other people think of us. 
Wouldn't that be nice to be free from being controlled by what other people think of you? Wouldn't that be great? See, well, how, do, how does our world tell us to do it? Our world says, well, just decide who you are and then be all that. So you say, you know, I am who I am and I don't care. And that's the way you're going to do it. But that other people are like, hey, do not put me on a pedestal. Like, sweep that. Do not make me a role model, right? You hear athletes and others say this. Don't make, don't make me a role model. I just am who I am. Don't make me a role model. But that's actually a trap. Because that same person will say, I don't care what you think. I don't give judgment to you. And I don't give judgment just out there to the general world. But what I do is they're going to choose and make judgments on themselves based on their own standards. They might be saying, don't make me a role model so they can set their standards low. But it's a trap because you might not care for the opinions that others have of us, but we would end up competing for our own set of standards and try to achieve a verdict in our mind about ourselves. Like, okay, I'm all good. And then other times we'd realize I'm, I'm not a good. I can't even keep up with my own standards, my own court Paul doesn't look to himself to arrive at the verdict that he's a somebody. So where does he find his identity? If you're taking notes, say number one, he knows his sins, but he does not connect them to his identity. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Okay? This statement deserves full acceptance, just putting everybody on notice. Jesus came to save people, but me? I'm the worst. He knows his sins. Paul knew that he persecuted the church zealously, that he threw people in prison, that he took Christian people and he made them martyrs because he himself killed them. He knows his sins. But here's what he does. He refuses to play the performance game with God. He says, even my wrongs, my sins, washed away in Christ, I'm willing to be the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. All the wrongs I've done, they're just like scum and garbage. And then he goes on, he says this, number two, he knows his accomplishments and he doesn't congratulate himself. Philippians chapter three, verse eight, Paul writes, I consider everything a loss because of the surpass." surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. What's he saying? Listen, everything in life is to be like garbage compared to knowing Jesus. But what do we do? We're so busy puffing ourselves up and pursuing more in our lives that we say Jesus gets the leftovers. And Paul is saying, do you want to know the secret to contentment? Do you want to know when circumstances get hard, how to keep on and carry on and not quit? Then he says, listen, know your accomplishments, but don't congratulate yourself. Paul was known as a Pharisee among Pharisees. That means in his education, he was top of the educated Pharisees who were, in his day and age, the most educated people. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. When it came to the performance game, he knew how to perform and in front of people be absolutely at the top of his performance game and look like he never did anything wrong and perfectly as best as he was able follow the Old Testament law and he was zealous about it. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. When it came to the performance game, there wasn't anybody more zealous for God, wrongly zealous, than Paul. And until he came face to face with Jesus Christ, did he realize 
that all his worth could never be in his zealousness for a God that he couldn't see, but rather that his identity was found in Jesus Christ, that he is of Christ. So what does he do? When something goes wrong or something goes really well, he doesn't connect it to his confidence anymore. What do you and I do? We play the performance game. If it goes wrong, you had a bad day, it affects your confidence. If you have a bad hair day, it affects your confidence. If you go through a thing and you're having trouble with your kids, you're saying, this is affecting my confidence in a lot of other areas of my life. And part of that's because our ego is wounded. Our ego is trying to puff up and say, I'm trying to be as good a parent as that person, or I'm trying to do what's best for my kids. And, and all this thing, and Paul was saying, listen, if I do something great, or if I do something wrong, I'm not attaching that any longer to my confidence because I am of Christ. True humility stops connecting every experience and every conversation to yourself. You ever do that? You're talking to people and you're just waiting for them to pause so you can tell them your story about the same thing and maybe you're not listening well and you just always, you know, bringing, bringing this stuff back around to you and you want to be able to, like, like you're just waiting for your turn to like, okay, well, I, I want to give you my resume now. What are we doing? We're puffing ourselves up and then we're easily deflated. There is a freedom in forgetting yourself. Uh, our ego goes from being puffed up, which is so difficult, like all the time we're trying to puff it up and puff it up and puff it up and then we're easily deflated and then we're trying to, okay, it's like get the bike pumped back out and you're trying to puff it up again even though you got puncture wounds and you're trying to get it going and, and it's just exhausting. You, we, you and I go from being puffed up to being filled up. And then when you and I are filled up, it's out of the overflow that we serve. It's out of the overflow that when circumstances change, when Paul goes through persecution, he's getting the snot beat out of him, that he's basically saying, I'm just going to keep calm and carry on. No matter my circumstances, whatever happens, I'm going to keep calm and I'm going to carry on. Could you imagine not self-hating anymore? Could you imagine not self-loving so much anymore? Just filled. I'm not deflated. And I'm not puffed up. I'm just, I'm just filled up. And the more that I spend that time with Christ and the more I engage with him, he fills me up because I'm of Christ. And he begins to build in the things so I'm able to do hard things. I'm able to take appropriate risks. I'm able to love freely. Why? Because filled people keep on volunteering when they get deflated or without needing to be puffed up. Sometimes you and I stopped doing what was a good thing we were doing because we just didn't get enough affirmation. Why? Because we just said it's not feeding my ego. Other times, you and I were serving somewhere, doing something, and, and we got our toes stepped on, and we threw in the towel, and we quit because we just felt like we got wounded. And then that tapped into old wounds. And then it tapped into our whole life's goal to build up our ego. And so we just threw in the towel and we don't keep on when we get wounded. What is Paul saying? Whether we are homeless, whether we have a place to stay, whether we are well-fed, whether we are hungry, whether we are cold or hot or anything, he goes, whether we're beat up, whether we're insulted or we're affirmed, the affirmation doesn't go to our head and the criticism doesn't go to our heart. We just keep on keeping on. Do you get devastated by criticism? Is it deflating for you? Maybe you just had a really, you know, below subpar job performance review. 
Maybe you had someone just reject you. Maybe somebody criticized the way you said something and the way you did something. Is it deflating? Do you make judgment as to who likes you and your status and your promotion? Are you self-inflating? If so, of course, you're in danger of being deflated. But the amazing thing is when you and I learn the freedom of self-forgetfulness, that criticism no longer deflates you. The gospel-filled person begins to see criticism as an opportunity to change. It's not that we reject it. Oh, I don't listen to criticism. I put all critical people away from me. No, we begin to hear the criticism for what it is, but it no longer is going to have the power. That judgment is not going to have the power to puff me up, and it's not going to have the power to deflate me. Instead, it's opportunity to change, to refine, to get better. And what if you and I begin to stop giving power to criticism that keeps you and I inactive? Wouldn't you like to be the kind of person who walks by a mirror and you're not deflated anymore? You're not self-critical? Don't even want to see yourself in there? Or on the other hand, you're the kind of person who walks by the mirror and you admire every mirror you've ever seen because you're always like, Checking your hair and just, you know, every car you walk by, you're like, reflection, I'm looking pretty good, you know, checking things out, you're like, you know, looking around, right? Ridiculous. What are we doing? We're puffing up or we're deflated. Wouldn't you like to be free from that? Wouldn't you like to be able to celebrate someone else when you come in second as the runner-up? Wouldn't you want to be celebrate the winner? I got to tell you something. The person who's the runner-up and celebrates the winner looks like the best person because it almost like those two are like best friends. Because who would do that, you think? And yet they celebrate the other team. They say, are they disappointed at times? Sure. But they're not letting it build their ego or deflate their ego. They are filled up so they're able to celebrate somebody else. Could you imagine marriage partners stop competing, stop puffing up themselves and begin to reach toward one another? Stop letting the criticism from one deflate you so badly and look at it as an opportunity to change. Not as an ongoing criticism or a rejection, but what value might there be in that? What value might there be in the affirmation? And let's stop puffing ourselves up because when we're so puffed up, we have no room to inflate anybody else. We're distended, we're painful. Only in the gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. When the judgment happens, only in the gospel do you get the verdict before the performance. In Christ, the verdict had been given. You are my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. That's who you are. I don't have to build my resume. Paul said you are of Christ. He said that in 1 Corinthians 3, the previous chapter, at the end in verse 23, that you are of Christ. And because you're of Christ, you are free now to serve. You're free to love. Stop inflating yourself and putting your resume together and then getting deflated and being controlled by that. But instead of pursuing a human being, pursue Christ. He is the one and the only. And the beautiful thing is that in Christ, the verdict can give us freedom and enjoyment in living for the eternal. Christ was on trial. He was put to death as our substitute. He willingly humbled himself. He left heaven. He came to earth in the form of a baby born by a virgin birth. He lived a perfect life. His performance was flawless. It was perfect. No one could find a charge to hang on him. And yet they falsely accused him. And he took your sin and mine upon the cross. And he could have called down legions of angels and said, forget it. 
I don't want to go through hard things. I don't want to experience pain. Why should I risk this? What was he doing? He's saying, I will go through all these things because of eternity is at stake in relationship with you and with me. He loved us that much. I will do hard things now in a short season so I can be with my bride, the church, forever. And what do we do? We trade the short little life like this right now at the expense of forever. And we're distracted and busy and puffing our egos up and distended. Paul is beautiful in his writing because he also says this, that sometimes God brings somebody along to help guide you as well. You're not left just all on your own. 1 Corinthians 4, 14, he says this, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, I'm the one who told you about the gospel. So he's saying, I am your father, is what he's saying to these people. Why? Not because anything's great about me. We're still equal. We are of Christ. But I'm the one who brought you the words of Christ. And so he's saying, if you want to learn anything from me as one who's gone before you, learn this. He says, therefore, I urge you to imitate me. He's not saying, stop following Apollos. Stop following, you know, Peter. You know, just come after me. What he's saying is, imitate the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Imitate that you are of Christ. And because you're of Christ, you can keep calm and carry on when you want to quit. He says this, for this reason, I have sent you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. What's he saying? I'm sending you Timothy. He will come as your main preaching, teaching guy there at Corinth, and he's going to lead you, and he's going to remind you that you are of Christ. And his teaching agrees exactly with Paul's way of life. Paul mentored Timothy. So what does he say? I don't give power to what you think. And frankly, I don't give power to what I think. I only care what God thinks. Court adjourned. Case closed. Can you imagine that a soul that is free from being empty and painful and busy and fragile? Can you imagine just having a soul that you're saying, God, as I draw close to you, my soul is just filled, not puffed up, I'm not deflated, filled up in you. What a beautiful place to be. That kind of soul can volunteer, they can serve others, they can pursue a life ministry and passion that God gives you. You can handle all the arenas of your life with good stewardship because you're living for Christ's eternal kingdom and because you have hope. With hope, you have the ability to rise above your circumstances, keep calm, and carry on with your heads bowed, your eyes closed as we just go into a time of decision. Today, believers, I want you to think just for a minute. Would you be honest with God about where you've been puffing yourself up? What things you maybe have been putting your your ego in? And today, would you just offer up humility to God? Say, God, I will choose to be scum of the earth because I'm rich in you. I am of Christ. And I realize that around this room today, there are are some who have never put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've never become of Christ. You you don't know what we're talking about because it just doesn't seem natural. And yet today you realize you've been trying to puff yourself up, but your sin still condemns you. You can't undo what's been done. 
But today you're realizing that because of Jesus, he took your sins on the cross. He paid for the penalty of all your sins. He put them upon himself and he says, if you put faith in me, if you surrender to me, I will become your Lord. I will give you eternal life and I will make you a new creation. And some of you in this room, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to say yes to Jesus. If that's you with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, nobody looking around, just if you want to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you want to surrender to him, say yes to him, then pray a prayer like this after me. Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross, that you took my sin upon yourself, and that you rose from the dead, and that you were God. I ask you to clean me of all my sin. Give me eternal life. Today, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.